traditionally the right side of your brain is more creative. And so that's why left-handed people are perhaps seen as more creative individuals because you're using the creative side of your brain. And so maybe it's a, a perfect storm of being dyslexic and then having that audio ability, but then also having a creative outset because of my being left-handed, I think kind of lends itself nicely to each other. My sixth year English teacher would beg to differ with you. Because also being left-handed, no one teaches you how to write correctly. So when you're using a pencil, you just kind of write across your words. So again, it's all about learning. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Rob Johnson. Rob's the Managing Director, Europe, for Onnit, a leader in the enterprise legal management space. And Rob sent me one of the more interesting pitches to be a guest on the show. He said he wasn't trying to promote anything. He just wanted to talk about the challenges people face, sellers face, when they have dyslexia and the challenges and opportunities it presents for sellers. So in this episode, Rob shares his story about how he developed into a top sales professional and sales leader despite the burden of having dyslexia. So we dig into why his dyslexia actually helped Rob become a super outbound caller, a cold caller. You know, he found since writing was so hard, he wanted to do anything but write and send emails. And so he really possessed this, you know, the opposite of call reluctance. We dive into the, his particular strengths besides cold calling that Rob has developed as a result of his learning disability. And we talk about five business strengths and advantages that research has found that dyslexics have, including enhanced problem-solving skills, using nonlinear thinking and visualization, as well as they tend to have a higher emotional intelligence, which is super important for sales, with an enhanced ability to read people and to get people on their side. So we're going to get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Rob, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Andy. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. So where have you been hiding out during the pandemic? Good question. Um, I, when the pandemic first happened, funny enough, we had moved just into a new house, mm-hmm. um, which probably on reflection wasn't a great um, time to buy a house in London, but uh, we did. <laughs> you mean the property values have dropped since then? Um, they fluctuated, um, but it's the added stress, right? Right. Um, and True. Um, I, it didn't have an office space, so I moved into a garage. That's mm. kind of, that was my first office. So thank goodness for 21st century technology. Um, I pretty much had given all of my money to um, the local phone network for using my phone as a hotspot. Um, but, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I spent the first kind of couple of months in a garage. Thought that, right, I can't do this forever. Because um, loads of um, meetings and obviously everyone had to have their cameras on as it was the new norm. They kept on querying why I had a cool Soho um, brick wall behind me um, and I shattered their dreams when I told them it was a shed <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I was there for a bit um, and then because the company I work for we we are predominantly focused in North America and I look after everything outside um, we're all kind of uh, we're remote workers here and so I took some space in our local library so in the local 18- public local- library Local public library, correct, yes. So we, um, as I'm sure you guys know, like in the 80s and 90s, 
public libraries had kind of computer labs, so big spaces where right. people, when computers were the size of cars sort of thing, um, which needed lots of space. We um, That space in the local libraries in our, I suppose, region had been converted into office space. And um, so it's hot desks, and they're cheap, uh, they're efficient, it's 24-hour access, and the proceeds go back into the community. So it's kind of a bit of a win-win, really. And there's... <laughs> we can't escape this topic is there's a covid protocol so you go in you feel safe or limit they limit the number of people some let's just say it's not it's not um it's not the most glamorous of office space let's put it politely and mm-hmm. um but it's functional and the wi-fi is better than my phone hub um, <laughs> but yeah so that there is there is there is covid um i suppose protocols and you can't stand without a mask and we all have our English tea here as well, so I can only have so many cups without people getting a bit flinchy about me keeping on going up and down. But you know, <laughs> the, the, um, that really is a first world problem. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but but now as we record this in it's early November, it's after the U.S. elections, but mm. uh, before Thanksgiving holiday, and UK is I think as of Thursday this week. Actually, the day we're recording this, aren't they shutting down? So we went Again? into yeah. So we went to lockdown two as we've coined it. Mm. Um, end of last, well, back end of last week. So we've okay. been in, we've been in for a week now. But as we were discussing offline, uh, this time round, the government thought it would be a good idea that children went to school still, um, which every parent in the land will forever kiss Boris Johnson's feet. It's one way. One way to get votes. Hey, you know, whatever way, kissing babies. (laughs) But um, but yeah, like like I said, it's um, things. I think people have become trained to it as well. So I'm sure it's the same in the US when we first had a big lockdown. Um, Everyone was unsure of protocol of what to do. No one went out. Everywhere was like a bit of a ghost town. People are just, I think, are a bit more trained to what they Mm -hmm. can't do now. And so there's there's still people on the streets. Um, we've got better at things like click and collect, so local stores can still service the local, um, I suppose, the local markets. And you can never shut a McDonald's down for love and no. love, right? Your drive through, yeah, drive through. So they're all open. Um, it's just retail that's taken a real hammering, um, kind of shopping centres and things like that. Mm-hmm. So Mao's. But, um, but, but I mean, we all find a new way to work, don't we? Um, as humans, we are flexible and we have the ability to adapt and change. And I think that's never been seen greater as we do at the moment, especially for my generation. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, yeah, I am, I've mentioned this before, eternally grateful that <laughs> I, my kids are grown and out of the house and, and, uh, yeah, didn't have to do homeschooling with this and, didn't have two parents both trying to work and young kids at home helping them, you know, either preschoolers as you have or, or, uh, you know, kids actually in school. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, crazy challenges. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about, let's get into what <laughs> you had a very interesting email you sent to me, a, a pissed pitch, a guest pitch, um, which, yeah, I, I uh, get all the time, but this one really caught my eye because you said, hey, you weren't trying to promote anything other than 
sort of surfaces issue of challenges people face when they have certain <clears throat> condition, in your case, dyslexia, mm-hmm. and the challenges and opportunities that presents for them as sellers. And quite honestly, we hadn't dealt with that. We've dealt with other issues uh, recently, like mental health and sales and so on. But but I thought this, uh, and we've had one, I guess, one other conversation about um, a couple of years ago with a guest with, uh, you know, ADD and talked about how that really became his superpower. So for you, has having dyslexia, has that really become your superpower? Um, ish. Ish. Okay. So um, I'm being British probably. I, I really struggle with superlatives and things of that notion. Um, so we can never <laughs> so what, would, what, would you, what would you say in place of superpower? Um, I'd say it gives me an advantage. Okay. It's probably a, a good thing to say. Yeah, so this actually all came around. Uh, we were on holiday, funny enough, when you could still go do that this year. Um, so we were in Spain, and I was I was listening to a couple of your of your podcasts when I was on the beach, and the girls were doing their thing. Okay. First of all, I'm sorry that you're listening to my podcast. Well, you should have been on the beach enjoying your, <laughs> your girls. <laughs> you know, it's... Um, it's a bit of escapism, you know, yeah. But um, but yes, yeah, so I was I was having a listen, and I felt that a lot of t- there's a, there's lots of typical topics out there in the world around sales and working hard and being efficient, things of that notion. Um, but people haven't really spoken about the elements of perhaps and I, me coming from it from a dyslexic perspective, how that's affected my career so far now. In my email to you, obviously, I mentioned around there are final products of that. So you kind of have people like Richard Branson mm. being dyslexic. But personally, I don't think it's good to have a, a figure of that notion in this world. But I'm probably not going to own an island anytime soon, right? So um, as, as a person to look up to and work towards, sometimes you have those ethereal figures that, doesn't really do anything almost like an elon musk sort of notion right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um I'm right. Not gonna start a space program anytime soon um but so I, I was very keen to perhaps have a bit more of a platform to talk around dyslexia and how that's affected me certainly from a sales perspective over the i suppose i've been in professional career now for about 10 12 years mm-hmm. um, so i'm 33 so, you're, so yeah, I forgot what, how old I was the other day. So <laughs> my wife very kindly reminded me instantly. Um, but yes, and, and so it's, uh, it's I, a bit early to start forgetting your age. By the way, I know it's, it's not a good sign. It's probably sales that's doing it to me. And the stress is just wait. Just wait till you're my age. Oh, forty-four. Yeah, forty-five. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so and um, it gave me the opportunity to reflect and see how my career has progressed because of who I am rather than not who I'm not. Right. And dyslexia is an element of that. And th- this all came about a long time ago when my, my first job out of university was actually working in real estate or estate agency. And um, they really drilled into kind of cold calling. So I was doing 250 calls a day. Six well, days a week. Well, let's put a pin in that that thought for a second, because let's go back and let's let's make sure people really understand what dyslexia is okay. and and the challenges that it presents for any individual, let alone for sellers. So, I'll let you handle that part. Yeah, of course. So, so dyslexia, in its fun, fundamental state, is is a challenge with the written word, 
um, and things on paper in a traditional sense. So I could read something and completely misinterpret what's happening within that paragraph or sentence. Um, again, there's more traditional things around spelling. So even to this day, I couldn't tell you the difference between there, there, and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's really kind of really standard things like that, um, which, again, my wife kind of takes the mick out of me for a bit for, but it's just our jests. And, and it's, it's, it's really struggling with that, that kind of notion on how words are structured and the language behind it. And, and so that... So there's lots of sort of social cues that, that stem from that as well. Yeah, there's social cues. Um, the ability to read people um, sometimes is slightly challenging as well. Um, and basically kind of the spoken word is something that you have to get more comfortable with. And, and effectively, once you get comfortable with the audio um, part of the world rather than the written world, um, dyslexic people have the ability to excel because you effectively can, you thrive in other areas which aren't just those kind of traditional things. Um, and it's always been a bit of a blind spot, I believe, in education here, certainly in the UK, around how to manage people with dyslexia. Um, the traditional model is just to give people two hours or an hour more. Extra time, right. Extra time in an exam. But the reality is there's a whole new process people have to do to, I suppose, educate and revise and do things in that notion. So there's kind of research into having colored paper, um, different font types. So, for example, my Kindle has a dyslexic font. Okay, hmm. so... There's even kind of those subtleties which help with the reading of words and things of like that. So, it, well, it, well, what does the font do? So it's just a bit of a different shape, and so it just kind of helps the words in my brain look and feel more easier to read and absorb. Um, so it's really weird. So kind of Times New Roman, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me, right? <laughs> and um, but the same as Comic Sans, so that doesn't do anything for me either. But this this font on my Kindle, and it's called dyslexic font, um, effectively huh. just, you know, shapes the words in a way that just makes them easier to kind of absorb as an individual. So it's weird, but it seems to do the trick. And so, do you notice the difference though? Using that, and think back to like, oh God, when I was in the university, I could really have used this because I'm doing all this intensive reading. Yeah. So the um, so it was actually university that picked up on my dyslexia. So. So you're how old when you were first diagnosed? So I was, um, yes, uh, 18. So it was not something, and again, I kind of questioned my early education. Yeah, I was going to say, what what happened during those early years you were, you were struggling? Yeah, well, I think um, people just thought I was a bit of a dunce. But, um, huh. but yeah, so, and my wife picked it up, so we were just uh, dating at the time. And she was like, you should go and get tested for dyslexia because – Firstly, you can get a, a, a fund or a grant from the university um, because you are dyslexic. So I've got a free laptop and a printer, which is was more of a driver than actually dyslexic at the time, right? Because <laughs> um, I, I had a horrendous laptop, so that was helpful. But, but she, was, she was just like um, my wife, Elise, said, go and have a chat with them. And they put you through this um, course of uh, different things you have to do kind of um, putting shapes together and understanding different letters and you you know those um psychological tests no isometric tests that's it where you, they replace a word in a paragraph and you have to kind of um say what word should be put back in to make the sentence 
make sense and things of that hmm. nature. Um, and, and so I went through that and they said, yep, you're, you're dyslexic. Here's some stuff. But that was kind of it, right? They, um, you're in a separate room for when you're doing your written exams. Um, you had a, you had, and again, it's, I think people even to this day don't really know what to do with us as a breed. Um, because even when I was doing my dissertations and things like that, they just give you additional work count. Right. So there's not, there's nothing really helping me there except I can just use more words rather than having a word limit. Whereas in reality, um, dyslexics do pretty well when you limit our word count because then we don't, we have a tendency to waffle. So waffle is quite an English word, but right. No, no, we, we have it too. Yeah. So, or rabbit on, that's what we say here. Um, so if we can keep things concise, then you're onto a winner and that's kind of bled out into my professional career as well. Well, so as you were graduating from university and, and you had this diagnosis and you're looking at your choice of careers, was getting into sales something deliberate or like most of us, just something that we sort of fell into? Yeah. So actually sales came around in my uh, second year of university. So I did a four year course at Bournemouth and in the second year, you can do a placement. So that was one of the attraction, attractions to it. So you could do a, a year in industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I went to work for Hasbro, the toy manufacturer. Yeah. Um, it was about the time when the first Transformers film came out. Yeah. And um, obviously, it was, everyone was crazy for it. And you had all the um, Optimus Prime helmets and all that good stuff. But I, I, I actually went in doing marketing. Because, again, no one tells you about sales, particularly as a vocation, um, before you kind of fall into it. And then during that year, I went to this thing that was called the Christmas in July, which effectively means it's a PR event that happens in about July and August. And it's uh, effectively displaying all the Christmas toys. So the PR come and they see right. all the Christmas toys for that year. And I, and I saw a couple of the sales guys doing their thing effectively not from where i was at but a couple of um, competitors like mattel were doing their thing um i went to set up the stall for um hasbro and rather awkwardly the sales guy i was meant to be with so i was kind of that spotty long-haired kid um who was just supporting a sales guy um didn't turn up for some reason and so it was kind of on me to push hasbro's toys for that christmas at 18 um and you kind of have that sink or swim moment right yeah, i was gonna say you're definitely thrown into the deep end of the swimming pool or the sales pool at that uh, <laughs> that day yeah. especially when you don't know what you're doing um mm-hmm. but i gave it lots of enthusiasm i had um about 11 coffees because i was nervous as hell and uh we got through the day and but funny enough, the next day, rather sheepishly, the sales guy turned up with a bottle of Grey Goose to apologize. Um, but I was hooked from that point. But, um, the sales was something that I wanted to do, and I had my first taste of it and was keen to go and find more of that. Because the communication was spoken, mm-hmm. and what you're doing was spoken as opposed to being dependent on exchanging emails and other things like a marketing job. Exactly. So it was, it was all about engaging people, discussions, um, conflict and resolution, but, but all kind of um, in person rather than email. And that, that kind of really spoke to me because before marketing and everything we were doing at university, so I was doing a degree which covered a variety of, um, I suppose, 
topics under business studies. Everything was heavy written, so it was all marketing, it was law, HR, things of that notion, uh, but no sales, funnily enough. And um, and that gave me the entrepreneurial bug to kind of go and push my 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 career into sales, which then kind of moved into once I graduated, um, I did okay. So as good as I could have done. So I got a 2-2, which is pretty average in the UK for a university degree. Mm-hmm. So I, I went and found a job where I could push my skills that I've kind of had a taste for in my second year of university. And so that was your real estate job. That was my real estate job. Um, yeah, so that happened. And so tell us what tell us what you're doing, what the job was, and and because I mean you've sent me information about it and so on is is and you just mentioned before is you're making a ton of calls every day. Mm-hmm. So it was it was back in the it was well, there was no technology to support. So it was you effectively had a big book, and then you had to call your way through um, pretty much kind of a private directory of people trying to get them to sell their house with the estate agent I was working with at the time. And we effectively got paid every time a house, or we called it, it's called an instruction here. It might be called something slightly different in the States. But effectively, when a house goes onto the market, we A listing, get, they call it here. A listing, right. Yeah. So every time you got a listing, we got a, I, got a, I, got a, I got a cut of um, just a kind of spot bonus for it. And so, like I said, I was take, making 250 calls a day, Six days, a, six days a week. Without a dialer. That's the thing, without a dialer, right? You were dialing the numbers in. Yeah, without a dialer. Man, <laughs> my, um, after kind of six months of doing that, you were, I, was a, I was a mean machine with a, with a, hand, with a handset. The, um, you could dial numbers without even looking and knowing the shortcut through voicemails and all that kind of good stuff. And, um, but, yeah, so that was – that was kind of how I cut my teeth in this world. Cause again, it was all about speaking to people. There was no email. We were actually discouraged to use email. And that's because pretty much we were a workforce of 20 year olds who couldn't be trusted with outlook, even if you gave it to us. Um, and we were just there to hammer the phones and get those listings going. So that's what my first job was, Andy. So for you, and I think this thing that's, that's fascinating, it was, almost like the opposite of call reluctance <laughs> because this was an environment for you suddenly where this felt natural. Yeah, it felt comfortable. So we, and again, it, it came down to two fundamentals, trying to work harder than anyone else because it, that kind of gig is pure is a pure numbers game. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. The more people you can get in front of and speak to, the more opportunity you have to kind of win a listing. Um, and there's no there's no negotiation around a contract that takes six months for a complicated piece of tech. It's literally, will you sell your house with me, yes or no? If the answer is no, thank you very much, and I'll speak to someone else. If the answer is yes, then great. So, And again, it's just that instant um, discussion, um, kind of understand their issues, try and address them within a couple of minutes and move on. So that, that was kind of the process. Well, I mean, was there anything you felt from having dyslexia that you felt gave you an advantage in that situation? I, th- I think it was just pure, my pure um, concern for writing an email. <laughs> it just, it, it, it boiled down to written communication. I, 
I've refused to do it. So some of some of my competitors, if you will, um, on the sales floor would write some emails and things like that. But I kind of thought, well, by the time it takes you to write an email, I could have tried to speak to five people, right? And so, and again, it's just one of those things. The more you do it, the more you get comfortable with it. Yeah. I, I even I remember making my first call to someone who kind of very politely told me to go away. Um, and my hands were so sweaty after that, right? So, so, but you get used to it and you train yourself again. Yeah. Kind of how we were talking around and you, you come, um, I suppose, a bit of an assassin in how to kind of deal with people and understanding how to come over their rejection straight off the bat, even if you're calling them at half seven at night and things of that notion and when to push and when not to push. Um, and those I think all that audio cues that perhaps are slightly heightened in me because of my dyslexia helped me read those signals quicker than perhaps some of the people that I was competing with on that floor. Yeah, some of the in preparation for this is doing some reading on dyslexia, and and yeah, there there seemed to be some consensus among the various articles I read that yeah, the sort of uh, they didn't always label it emotional intelligence, but sort of emotional intuition, I think, is one of the articles called it. Is this, yeah, sense that sort of uh, ability to read people, but maybe just being a heightened sensitivity to their their feelings, and maybe the the intonation of their voices and so on that that you can use to your advantage. I think so, and um, it's interesting because because I've been reading up on this type of thing more um, certainly over the last couple of years and. It perhaps even ties into the fact that I'm left-handed as well. And people are hmm. querying that or raising an eyebrow. Um, but it's because if you're left-handed, you use the right side of your brain. And if you're right-handed, you use the left side of your brain. And the traditionally, the right side of your brain is more creative. And so that's why left-handed people are perhaps seen as more creative individuals because you're using the creative side of your brain. And so maybe it's a a perfect storm of being dyslexic and then having that audio ability, but then also having a creative outset because of my being left-handed, I sure. think um, kind of lends itself nicely to each other. My, my sixth year English teacher would beg to differ with you. Um, because <laughs> um, also being left-handed, no one teaches you how to write correctly. So when you're using a, a, a pencil, you just kind of write across your words. So, so it's, um, again, it's, uh, it's all about learning. Right. So what was the path then out of the, the real estate sales into the tech world? It's, um, I think the world can thank my wife, Elise, for it. So she, she, there was only so many ways that she could tell our friends that I wasn't an estate agent. <laughs> so so <laughs> she, you have to get a new job, Rob, because firstly, you can't work weekends because I want right. to see you. Um, and secondly, um, real estate isn't the end all of it all. And so a recruiter called me up and was like, Rob, would you like to do something else? And I didn't ever really engage with a recruiter before. Um, so I was new to that. And LinkedIn was just kind of up and coming around that time. Um, but they reached out and uh, I said, yes, yeah, sounds great. I'm keen to sell something a bit more complicated than what I'm doing now. And they said, would you like to sell uh, M&A, so merger and acquisition data rooms? And I was like, what is a data room? And they said, we don't know. <laughs> so I was like, that's a good start. Okay. Right. Um, 
And at the time, I couldn't find anything on the internet about M&A data rooms, um, which effectively are just storage facilities for due diligence information um, for a transaction. And uh, But I went I went to the interview. I met with a gentleman called Harry Gill, who became my first kind of proper sales manager. And he obviously liked me, saw something in me, and I was um, I was their first sales hire. Now, I'd gone from a world where, we'll see if you're dealing with 100 sales guys on a sales floor, everything's very uh, regimented and almost military, to a place where I had freedom to do what I wanted to do. And I kind of fell back to where I cut my teeth, which was hitting the phones and not doing email. And they liked that because traditionally, well, as humans and especially sales guys, we fall down or fall back to what we're comfortable with, which is not making that cold call. So that was my first job out of into tech. Hmm. And so did you have to disclose to Harry that yeah, you're more comfortable with the spoken word versus the written word? Yeah, so I actually, um, as part of my job interview, it was interesting, um, I made them, and this might sound a bit bizarre now, I made them do a cold call with me. <laughs> so I was trying to think of a way of how I could differentiate myself. Oh, I love that. From the other people that would uh, probably applying for that job as well, right? Because they would probably have other tech or SaaS sales reps applying for that job. And I'd come from real estate. I hadn't really just, just selling listings. Um, so I was just, so I had to try and think of somewhere I can differentiate myself. And the best way I could think of that is, let me cold call you, Harry, and the CEO at the time. I pretend you're at Goldman Sachs or um, mm-hmm. Big Apple Bank, and I'm trying to pitch you a data room. Um, and we, even though you had no idea what it was, no idea what it was. <laughs> but you know, you only get one, you get one shot at this, so you might as well give right. it a go. Um, and, and so I did, and they obviously liked the. Uh, it was it wasn't foolproof, and it. I'm, Hopefully, there's no recording of it anywhere. Um, but it's kind of set my they set their expectation for what I was prepared to do for the role. And I think sometimes people get too caught up in perfection um, and just trying hard and giving things a go like that in interviews um, shows that I suppose your true colours rather than trying to put the wall over people's eyes. And so that's what I did to get that job. Well, and I. Th- I think that's really fascinating because I think that this is one of the questions that, that I have as is, is you think about it is, is certainly there's some uh, you know, not insignificant percentage of the population that has you know, something like dyslexia or some other what we might call learning disabilities that, that present in a way that, that for candidates they don't have sort of the classic academic achievement you know, at university or – yeah, as as companies rely more and more on these assessment tests, whether they're you know, personality assessments, and we're trying to divine where somebody has you know, sales DNA or whatever they want to call it, mm. is yeah, a dyslexic is it going to test the same way? Is it going to present the same way? And yet, right. to your point, and again, what what you read is is because of the strength of the oral communications, which is not going away in sales anytime soon is is actually a great candidate but on paper may not look like it so this idea about how do you present yourself if you have dyslexia or add or something that yeah how do you how do you present yourself to hiring managers 
Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? So, so you've got to, that's why I said to those guys, I've got, I've got to present to you some way of how I can differentiate myself from people that, that kind of mindset of how I can perhaps, um, I suppose have some sort of impression on an interview came from funny enough at Hasbro. I, I went for a psychometric test with those guys. So again, coming back to what we mentioned before about kind of that, um, what does this paragraph mean? And then mm-hmm. if we have these words and things like that, <laughs> they, they gave me the job, but the hiring manager called me up and said, Rob, you got the worst ever score on this <laughs> test. So he hired you in spite of yourself is what he was saying. They hired me in spite of myself. Now, maybe because I was the only person going for the job. Um, but they said, like, that's something you need to look at because obviously in the professional world, when you get out of this kind of bubble of your placement year, um, people are going to do that. And, and, and so that kind of always has stuck with me. And I've actually been to job interviews since, and I've refused to do a, a psychometric test. Um, because ultimately it's only going to reflect negatively on me. And so I'd rather just not do it. And if they say that's part of the process, then just accept the fact that I'm not going to get that role. So, And do you tell them why? Yeah, you tell them why. Um, and they don't they care or don't care? I think I think a bit of both. Um, like big corporates in the world, they're very much ones and zeros, right? So like huge multinational organizations, they have a hiring program. And to be honest, they don't care about if I'm Rob or not Rob. They just have to hit certain metrics in order to hire. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And that's why I think there's always going to be really intelligent people working for startups and growth organizations, which large corporates would always like to get involved with, but they're just going to always struggle in those kind of those entry tests. So my, my wife's the most intelligent person I've met, kind of standard husband and wife response. Mm-hmm. But, um, so she, but, we, but, but, but before you go on, is, is mm. she is the one that, by your own admission, that got you to pay attention to your dyslexia, right? Absolutely. And Absolutely. motivated you to get out of real estate. So kudos. What's your wife's name? Elise. Elise. Mm-hmm. So, kudos yeah. to Elise for helping you get where you are. Kudos to Elise, indeed, and she um, she will more than happily take the plaudits as she does. Um, <laughs> good for her. Good for her, indeed. But so we we both went for an, an entry exam at IBM, as the example. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't get close, right? Um, whereas she she got the role, she got the job um, there, and um, but that that environment would never be right for me right. because again, it's just. It's too metric-driven and too heavy in that world. Um, but we see that coming into the startup world as well. I mean, there's mm. there's this thing that I rebel against and think is such a bad idea is this, this idea of, in the tech world, is that everybody's basically got to be the same, right? That we've created in this company, large or small, we've created this this model. We can now use our technology to to compare how people do in various tasks versus other people. And we've got this idealized version of what this top salesperson looks like. And the problem is in my mind is, is that it doesn't account for the people such as yourself that, that bring significant strengths differently to the job than what they're accustomed to seeing. And, and too many people get overlooked and maybe I'm sensitive. I don't have it, but I just, 
yeah, one of my first sales training class, I'm kind of introverted and they thought I was yeah, too analytical to be good in sales. <laughs> they wanted to get rid yeah. of me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm just, just thinking, I mean, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there doesn't seem to be room for difference. And I, I think this is a problem this, you know, as a manager, you're trying to hire the people who can best help you succeed. I think that's true. But I am um, also perhaps a bit of a cynic. So I think organizations probably are okay with just kind of a certain level of employee. So it comes down to kind of having ones, twos, threes, fours, and fives, isn't it? Uh, you mm. can't have a whole organization of ones because it would just be a, a nightmare. Um, but again, you can't have a, an organization full of fives because you won't get those outliers who are going to go and hit 5 million in a year sort of thing. Um, but again, you need a blend of all of them, right? So you right. need the you need the guys who are just going to do their nine to five, not query anything, just kind of happy with that because they're your kind of your steady eddies um, and are just going to do the job you ask them to do without any too much stress. Um, and then you need a couple of ones because again, they'll need heavily managing, but again, they're going to kind of turn the dials with regards to the progression and growth of the business. So I think. Um, I think that it's going to be a continuous challenge for people who have perhaps, again, dyslexia is seen as a disability, and I think that's just a classification, but right. have, have these type of things. Uh, and again, it's the same way I, I approached you, right? Is I tried to think of something different to perhaps discuss this which, message. Which worked. Yeah, yeah, I think that, and the thing that's, that's fascinating about it is, is, so I was reading this article, <clears throat> talked about sort of the five key business attributes of dyslexics, and they created this, this acronym called DOMES, D-O-M-E-S, D standing for as dyslexics have to learn to delegate tasks oftentimes, which to me really reads as collaboration. Mm. Uh, so more naturally collaborative. O is for oral communication, obviously uh, quite good at <clears throat> expressing themselves orally. And there th- the last three I thought were fascinating, especially if you're working in any sort of complex B2B sale is the M stands for mental visioning, is that dyslexics have more nonlinear thinking and visualization skills. Um, you know, somebody compared to like a musician who can see the notes when they're playing, yeah. which you know, if you're dealing in a complex sales world, that's fantastic. You want that, right? Because, because yeah, you're doing something creative. You're thinking about things outside the box. You're not heading down the same path and because no two customers are alike. It, that's a strength. And, E we talked about was for this emotional intuition to be able to read people better. And the S was speed because the, uh, in this article saying that, that people dyslexic dyslexia tend to, you know, constantly be turning things over in their mind. Right. And think about things from many angles. So they see possibilities in situations that others don't perhaps. And yeah, if you're looking for ones, Especially if I said if you're doing a complex enterprise sale, for instance, man, if you make a list of uh, of attributes you wanted, several of those would fit right on the list. Yeah, it's. I think I think there's lots of education that dyslexics should do as well, which I don't think we do as well, um, or don't do particularly well. But but that kind of analogy really works to what I've tried to set up here is effectively just hire the skill sets that I am rubbish at, right? Mm-hmm. So 
So Claire Bannon, she's, she's, she leads my sales engineering effort here and she's everything that I'm not. So, so I'm good at quickly building that relationship, um, getting an idea on where we need to go pretty quickly, but horrendous at the detail. Right. Um, and maybe that's because other elements of my dyslexic or just who I am, but because I just, I don't write stuff down because I, I won't be able to understand or read it afterwards anyway, hmm. that um, I bring in those people who are more, I suppose, analytically driven um, to kind of supplement those areas, which I, I suck at. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's like, it's, again, we're all different as humans, but I think it's important for all us to go through that kind of almost self-actualization of understanding what we're good at and what we're not good at. And I've, I've tried to always think of that as I've gone through my career so far. Um, and that's, and again, it comes down to how I reached out to you guys. Cause I was keen to, for this as an interesting subject matter to how I went through that job interview by suggesting doing something that would set me apart, even if I bombed at it. Mm-hmm. Um, just the willingness to do it, just the willingness and openness to do it. And that, that funny enough, happened again when I went for my second job. So I went from M&A data rooms. Um, and then another recruiter called me and said, hey, are you looking for another role? And I was like, not particularly, um, but I'm always keen to perhaps try and sell something more complicated or more expensive, um, kind of get a better return. Mm-hmm. From mm-hmm. And um, so then I went into e-discovery, which is, if, you, if you're not aware of e-discovery, it's kind of um, – it's if I sue you, it's the information that's became becomes available in right. court. So on a, um, on a legal basis, because you're, mm. I, we didn't talk about it yet. It was in, it'll be in the introduction that people hear this, but but you work for a company called Onnit. That's you've sort of been in the the legal tech field for a while. Yeah, so I've been in legal tech for ten years now. Um, so this was kind of my entry into legal tech was uh, through M and A as a gateway, and then into e discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but funny enough, so I was supposed to recruiter, and it was me versus a veteran of the of the industry for this job. And so, interestingly, I flipped the methodology to try and get that job again, so differently. So, I actually wrote my boss, um, who became my boss. I wrote him a letter. Okay, um, you didn't call him. You wrote him a letter. I didn't, I didn't call him um, because I had an interview. Um, we went through that process. But I thought to try and differentiate myself again, again, we're saying something a bit more complicated. So it's the calling is part of it. So mm-hmm. but you couldn't just sell it on the spot. Um, are you okay? Something going on? <laughs> oh, no, we're just uh, real life. Uh, real things, life. Sirens going things, by. Things happening. Cool. Um, so I wrote him a handwritten letter. Um, I didn't check any of the spelling. Um, my handwriting was horrendous. And I posted it. And the reason why I did that was I knew the other guy wouldn't, right? Yeah. Um, so, again, going against that traditional dyslexic norm, so to speak, of writing something, um, I had to try and find a way to get in front of that hiring or the manager. Um, and I thought the best way to do it would be to write a handwritten letter. And that's what swayed it. Yeah. I love that. Think about that. You know, people listening, this is, you did it by highlighting your weakness. Yeah, so, very counterintuitive. I love that. You've got to, yeah, because again, the the hiring market is always being competitive. It's, yeah, it's, 
even more competitive now. So what's the worst thing that's going to So you're always a big believer and you've got to think about what's the worst thing that's going to happen. And ultimately in that scenario is you're just not going to get the job. Right. right? And so you've got to try something different. And the reality with anything that I've done is I've always tried to think of something that would differentiate rather than going through the normal process. Because any job, even today, that I've applied for, and it's the traditional model of you you apply on LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. a call, and then nothing happens. That happens to people all the time. And you don't have any impact on that process. If you don't have any impact you're not putting across your personality and ultimately in sales, that's kind of what you sell on, right? Is your personality and your ability right. to build a relationship. Very interesting. No, I love that story. Cause I mean, I just, you know, one of the things that, and this is sort of parallel to this, but in, in today's world, obviously one of the big challenges, is how do you grab people's attention? And, you know, now we have this whole, sort of gifting space that exists where people are creating, you know, digital gifts or gift packages or something they said, you know, physical gift packages to send to people to mm-hmm. land on their desk and capture their attention in a way that an email or LinkedIn outreach wouldn't. But, but yeah, it takes some nerve to say, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to edit this handwritten note. I have dyslexia. My writing sucks. The, 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 you know, I can't help it. And the spelling's going to be horrible. But it will stand out. It will stand out. Uh, and to be fair, the ability to write has got easier. So um, I am a huge advocate of Grammarly now. Oh, if yeah. You, yeah. Have you come across that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, um, so when, because, because I sell complicated stuff now, I do have to write an email every now and then. Um, well, so you're normally, selling into a profession that people are writing by, by definition. They're writers. I know. I, I didn't choose a great one to go into being dyslexic, um, <laughs> being lawyers who they are. And they, they love the written word and all of its kind of subtle nuances, um, whereas that's not my game. Mm. Uh, so, so, so my process now typically is Grammarly, or Grammarly is my first port of call, um, and then it probably goes to about two other people. So, um, I, again, as you probably kind of have as I've come across, is I have no shame in asking for help. <laughs> Um, and so even though I, I lead our organization here, I, I get probably two other people or three other people in my organization to review my email mm. and, and basically go slate it. Tell me what's wrong with it. Um, I'm not going to take offense. Um, even if it's schoolboy errors, again, ab- about using the wrong there or something right. like that, right. just it, it needs to be right rather than my feelings being saved. And, um, and yeah, so that's that's the model we work. And again, it's it's proving it proves it proves a lot better than you coming across fairly poorly in an email. Yeah. Well, fascinating. Um, well, hey, I'm Robert. I'm really glad you reached out. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. But okay. if people want to, I don't know. Do you have resources for people to learn about uh, you know dyslexia at all, or or if somebody feels this is uh, an issue, maybe they can reach out to you even and, and talk about if they're in sales. Yeah, of course. So um, I'm on LinkedIn, Robert Johnson, uh, on it, managing director. Um, yeah, I mean, if people want to reach out, have a chat. Um, I've, I've spoken to quite a few people in the past about who I am, what I do. I try and help. Um, so I'm, I'm one of the alumni at my, my school. Um, mm-hmm. And we're beginning to have a couple of conversations with them around how we can improve 
almost two things. So improve um, the dyslexic pro- pro- process they have, but also sales awareness education right. as well. Um, because I don't know if it's the same in the States, but in the UK, it's it's non-existent. And um, again, a few of us have made an okay career out of sales, right, Andy? Um, so, yeah, that sounds so, you're doing quite well. And I, I, this is the type of thing I said that that animates me is is that as I said before is is you know, it's not a path to success to try to have a team of people all like each other, but and act the same way, but to find those who can have unique strengths and can play to that in the environment that we're operating in, and, and this is certainly an example of that. So. No, I love it. Um, well, good. Well, Robert, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Okay, friends, that was it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Rob Johnson, for sharing his story with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or every listen to podcasts. You can also leave us a rating or a review. Let us know how we're doing. We'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.